Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. And this is a big one. This is our one-year episode. I have been so lucky to have you guys listening to Altitude Crime. And whether you're someone who has listened from day one, or this is the first episode you're ever listening to, I thank you for being a listener and for making Altitude Crime what has been in one year. We've accomplished so, so much and we're really growing our crime clan and I cannot wait to see what another year will bring. We've covered a lot of cases and a lot of victims this year and we all know that a lot more than that happens all over the country and the world every year. So thank you so much for bringing attention to these victims and their stories. To celebrate the one year of Altitude Crime, there is something new on the horizon. I will be opening a Patreon account for Altitude Crime. If you want to go check it out now, you're welcome to do that. It is live, although I will be putting some posts in there soon. The first Patreon episode is going to come out on April 15th, and then they will be on the 15th each month after that. So if you go ahead and sign up now, you will be all set to go ahead and get that episode on the 15th. And in addition to that, you're going to get ad-free listening. I know not many of my episodes have ads, but the ones that do will be removed and you'll get that ad-free listening in the future. And you'll also get 10% off the merch store all year round. And you can get this extra content and the little bit of extra perks for just $5 a month. The episodes that will be included on there will be full-length episodes, so please, please, please go and check it out. You can either go to altitudecrime.com, there will be a Patreon link, or you can just go to patreon.com slash altitudecrime and that'll get you there too. I'll give another reminder about this at the end of the episode, but I would love if you checked it out. It helps me help you get you more content. (laughs) All right, so this week's episode is a big one and I have been saving this story specifically for the one year anniversary because it is huge. We are talking about Ted Bundy's time in Colorado. Now the thing that I think happens all too often in the telling of the Ted Bundy story is there's a huge emphasis and fascination with him and not that there shouldn't be some level of that I mean, you can only imagine what went on in his brain. And for many, many years of his killings, he held, you know, this very coherent, normal life in addition to what he was doing. But there has become this kind of idealizing of him. And it's at the detriment to the victims and the victims' families. I feel like victims in the Ted Bundy story get really, really overshadowed. And as you know, that's not what I'm about. So I am going to talk about Bundy a bit. I'll give a, you know, brief snapshot of where he is in his serial killer career when he gets into Colorado. I'll touch base a little bit on how we learned about how the Colorado cases were connected to him at the end and at his execution. But I am really trying to focus on the Colorado specific information and trying to focus a little bit more on the details of the victims. This was a time in United States history that women were really starting to gain their independent lives. They were going out and getting careers instead of just going into the home as a wife and a mother. They were taking control of their sexual freedoms 
And really things were changing a lot for the opportunities afforded to women and the opportunity just to live their life the way that they deemed fit. But as we know, Bundy's killings really took some of this independence back from women. It really struck fear in women's lives that, you know, you could be out doing your own thing and someone like Bundy could make you a victim. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. So let's start with a little snapshot of where we are in Ted Bundy's life when he makes his way to Colorado. Bundy attended the University of Washington and studied psychology and then attended law school at the University of Utah. He volunteered at a hotline for suicide prevention and had a longtime girlfriend named Elizabeth. At the point that he makes his way to the Centennial State, Bundy had already claimed lives in Washington, Idaho, and Utah. At this point in time, there are 13 verified murders connected to him. Bundy first ended up in Snowmass, Colorado in January 1975. This would have been while he was in law school and during a winter break. Only two weeks into the year, he would find his first Colorado victim. Karen Eileen Campbell was 23 in January 1975. On January 15th, she was in Snowmass, Colorado. Karen was actually from Dearborn, Michigan and was a nurse there, but she was in Snowmass and staying at a hotel called the Wildwood Inn. The inn is now known as the Wildwood Snowmass. She and her fiancé were both in town as they had a week and a half ski trip planned. On January 15th, the couple was two days into their trip. That evening, Karen would go up to their hotel room on the second floor to get a magazine and she would go missing somewhere between walking from the elevator to her room. When Karen got on the elevator at the lobby level, her fiance was still down in the lobby of the hotel. And these reports are a little conflicting, but either a witness or a friend saw her get off the elevator on the second floor, just feet away from her hotel room. After her not coming back down to the lobby, Karen's fiance called police at about 10.30 p.m just a few hours after having not seen her. Investigators searched every inch of the hotel, interviewed 100 people, and ski patrol combed the immediate area. Karen's disappearance was now a missing persons case. But just over a month later, on February 17th, Karen's body would be found in a snowbank about four miles away from the inn. She was found on Owl Creek Road, where the road descends from Sinclair Divide to Snowmass Village. Her body was found just above the Tom Blake trailhead. Karen's body was under the snow and there had already been a lot of animal activity with her body. Karen was nude with her hands bound behind her and she had been heavily battered. She had signs of blunt force trauma to the head and deep cuts on other parts of her body. But investigators did not find any evidence of sexual assault but they did find that she most likely was tossed from a car in order for her to land in her final resting place. Less than a month after Karen's body was found, another Colorado woman would go missing. Julie Cunningham was born on January 10, 1949, 
and on March 15, 1975, was 26 years old. Julie had lived in Vail for a few years and worked at a ski shop and was also a part-time ski instructor. She had actually just returned to town from a two-week trip in Idaho. But the trip wasn't a happy one. It seems like she maybe went there to see a guy and it didn't go well. She told her mom some details about this on the phone before leaving her house because when you have boy drama, what's the best thing to do? Spend some time with your friends. Julie left her home, which was an apartment in the Apollo Park neighborhood, and she left on foot to walk to meet some friends at a bar a couple of blocks away. But she never made it to the bar, and Vail police were called to report her missing. Julie was known as dependable, and it just didn't make sense for her to have picked up and left. Her body was never located. A potential location was searched with a bloodhound and team in April 1989, but found nothing. A group called NecroSearch, which is a collaboration of a lot of different professionals in different areas, tried to search for her body and ended up turning up nothing. There's a really detailed account of this in the book No Stone Unturned by Steve Jackson. I have left a link to it on altitudecrime.com. I am still working through that book, but I highly, highly recommend it. It is all professionals based in Colorado that started that organization, and it's really interesting, so I would really recommend it. But like I said, unfortunately, even with all of their knowledge combined, they were not able to find Julie's body. And then under a month later, another woman in Colorado would go missing. Denise Lynn Oliverson was born on August 10th, 1950, and she was 24 years old on April 6, 1975, and she was last seen on her bike leaving her home in Grand Junction at 1619 Levita Street. Denise had gotten in a fight with her husband and was riding her bike to her parents' house just to take a break. Again, People did not know Denise as the kind to pick up and leave, so when she never got to her parents' home and never returned to her own home, alarm bells rang. The next day, a railroad employee found some unsettling items just a block from Denise's home under the 5th Street Bridge. This bridge is close to the Colorado River on U.S. Route 50. The items that were found was Denise's yellow 10-speed bike and her sandals. Nothing was ever heard from Denise again, and her body was never found. While police were still looking into both Julie and Denise's missing persons reports, the locating of Karen's body very quickly pointed to Ted Bundy being the perpetrator. But he was not officially connected to Karen's murder until 1976. Once investigators had her body, it did give them a lot more to go off of. And once they were able to get some further evidence against Bundy, he was easy to find. He was actually serving time in a jail in Murray, Utah. Bundy had been arrested four months after Denise went missing in August 1975. He had been arrested for the attempted kidnapping of a teenage girl named Carol Durange, and he was serving 15 years in Utah for the offense. While Bundy was in custody, the three different Colorado cases that had been worked by 30 different investigators were all suspected to be connected to Bundy, but an official connection had not been made. So in November 1976, all of the investigators from these different jurisdictions and different cases 
got together in Aspen to compare what information they had about each of their victims. And this meeting ended in a unanimous conclusion. Bundy was responsible for all three murders. Bundy was originally charged with Karen's murder and extradited to Colorado in January 1977. Karen's case was the easiest one to build because there was actually hard evidence in her case. It was the only Colorado case in which a body had been found. Additionally, Bundy drove a tan 1968 Volkswagen Beetle at the time that he was in Colorado. And then on September 17, 1975, after all of these women went missing, he sold this Volkswagen to a man named Brian Severson. The FBI were able to get this car and actually found hair in the car that matched Karen's hair. In Bundy's Salt Lake City, Utah apartment, they found a 1974-75 to 75 ski season Colorado Ski Country Guide. And the ski guide actually had an X next to the Wildwood Inn where Karen was staying and went missing from. So this tied him to both Snowmass and to Karen directly. There was also a crowbar with blood evidence found in his Salt Lake apartment, but the blood on the crowbar was not enough to trace to a victim. As I said, Bundy was extradited and the trial was slated to start two years after Karen had disappeared. On June 7, 1977, Bundy went to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen and the trial for Karen's murder began. Our favorite lieutenant, Lieutenant Joe Kenda, actually interviewed Bundy while he was in Pitkin County Jail prior to the trial. Kenda, as opposed to most people who talk about Bundy, said that he did not seem articulate and he seemed kind of unhinged. Bundy was insistent that he wanted to represent himself and serve as his own counsel. Doing so would allow him to be in the courtroom without handcuffs and feet shackles. According to Aaron Udell's reporting for the Coloradoan, Chuck Laidner, who was a Glenwood Springs public defender at the time of Bundy's offenses, said that he definitely loved being the center of attention and wanted to talk about himself at trial, but he seemed to have very little knowledge of how the court proceedings actually went. So it was no surprise when Bundy asked to use the courtroom library. Bundy was allowed to go use the library during a recess. It was assumed he would take the time to research information for his defense, but Bundy had a different plan. He was locked in the library, and some sources say that the prison guard went out for a smoke break, but I'm not sure how accurate this is. But Bundy was able to kind of block himself from view of officers through the glass of the door by standing behind a bookcase, and near this bookcase was a window that was cracked open. Bundy fled out the second story window, and if you see a picture of this building, this was quite the leap. According to Jason Oslander's reporting for the Aspen Times, Bundy would later call his leap out of the second story library, quote unquote, the great escape. Once out of the building, Bundy ditched his jacket to help change what he looked like because he knew people would be looking for him immediately. And they were. Police set up roadblocks at every road that could lead out of town. A helicopter search was deployed. Door-to-door searches were happening. But Bundy walked into the mountains and out of Aspen. Bundy continued to work his way through the mountains and would break into a trailer and a cabin in order to take clothes and food and other supplies 
to continue on his travels. He originally headed south towards Crested Butte, but then later stole a car and actually used it to drive back towards Aspen. Bundy was found six days later in a stolen car by Aspen police. He was driving on Highway 82 and officers actually pulled him over because he was driving kind of recklessly and they thought he might be a drunk driver. So he was rearrested on June 13th. And once he was rearrested, the charges of escape, burglary, and felony theft were added to his rap sheet. Bundy was moved to a different prison at this point. He was put in the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs, just about 40 minutes away from the Pitkin County Courthouse. Once at Garfield County Jail, he was put in solitary confinement. And just as a side note here, the Garfield County Jail has actually since been demolished. According to the Denver Channel's reporting, the sheriff's office even hung a lovely banner for his rearrest that said, quote, welcome home, Teddy, unquote. It was actually during the process of this rearrest that photographer Ross Dolan would take a picture that would become rather famous. And I'm sure you've probably seen it in anything you've looked up regarding Bundy. It's that really famous photo where he's surrounded by lawmen and he's in cuffs, but he's kind of looking up kind of just past the camera and flashing this big smile. Since Bundy's escape had drawn a ton of media attention, he asked for his trial to be moved to Denver and to try to get a different jury pool. The judge did not grant this, but instead moved the trial south to Colorado Springs. So this meant a lot of transport in the meantime to and from the courthouse and getting Bundy where he needed to be for proceedings. According to Aaron Udell's reporting for the Coloradoan, Deputy Leon Murray talked about having Bundy in his backseat as he did a lot of transport for him during this time. So he would say that Bundy would ask him a lot of questions like, quote, hey, Leon, where does that road go? Unquote. Quote, hey, Leon, how deep is the snow up that road? Unquote. Quote, what city's in that direction? Unquote. Leon Murray said, quote, I would just tell him, Ted, shut up. I'm not talking to you. Shut your mouth. And five minutes later, more questions. To me, it was obvious. He's planning his next escape, and he's trying to get a better geographical fix on where he's at and how to get away, unquote. And Leon Murray called it, because that's exactly what happened. Bundy had began calculating another escape that would play out on December 30th, 1977, just six months later. During this time, a woman named Carol Ann Boone had come into Bundy's life. She was essentially the courtroom girlfriend. She became involved in Bundy's case and involved with Bundy. She would actually become his wife three years later in 1980. But if you're wondering, she did stop visiting him in 1986. During the time that he was in Glenwood Springs, she brought him $500 and Bundy was able to get a layout of the jail and a hacksaw. He used this hacksaw to saw a hole in the ceiling of his cell that was about 12 inches by 12 inches, and he cut that in by a loose light fixture. He then proceeded to skip breakfast to lose 35 pounds and be able to fit through the hole. Christmas vacation proved to be a perfect opportunity for Bundy, as a lot of jail staff was off and they were a little leaner staffed during that time. So the evening of December 30th, he created a fake body, you know, piled up books and put blankets over them to make it look like he was in his bed. Then he removed the light fixture and shimmied up the tiny hole. 
He then continued to crawl through the ceilings until he reached the jailer's apartment. Now, this particular evening, the jailer and his wife were out, so he broke into the apartment to get a change of clothes and then literally waltzed out the front door of Garfield County Jail. Employees of the prison would not notice his absence for 17 hours until around noon the following day. And Bundy had gotten pretty far in 17 hours. He'd gotten to Vail by hitchhiking. Then he stole a car to get out of Vail, but the car died in Edwards just about an hour east of Glenwood Springs. He then hopped on a bus that went to Denver. And at this point, it would be the last time he would be in Colorado. He left Denver and hopped a flight to Chicago. He then took an Amtrak train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he stole a car and drove to Atlanta and then took a bus to Jacksonville, Florida. But his final stop would be in Tallahassee. While he was in Florida, he went to a bar and people would say that he was creepy. And this is very opposite of what we typically hear about Bundy. So you have to imagine that he's starting to unravel at this point. And we see that's true because it would be Bundy's time to take more victims. His killings in Tallahassee would be some of the most gruesome murders in his reign as a serial killer. He entered the Chi Omega sorority house and in this attack killed three women and left one survivor permanently disabled. According to Aaron Udell's reporting for the Coloradoan, Chuck Leidner said of the Florida killings, quote, it just smelled of him, unquote. After the Chi Omega sorority house, Bundy would take his final victim, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. Bundy was recaptured two months after his escape in February 1978 in Florida. He was caught after being pulled over in a stolen car. And the murders and assaults that he committed in Florida would land him in prison for good. After acting as his own representation, Bundy was convicted. The physical evidence against him was just too much for his lawyering. Some of this even included his confirmed teeth marks on a victim. This conviction was for the murders of Chi Omega's Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy, as well as his last victim, Kimberly Leach. And he was sentenced to death. Ted Bundy then sat on death row for 10 years and made perhaps some of his most famous comments during this time because he started a string of jailhouse confessions, most likely in an effort to delay his own execution. While on death row, he confessed to over 50 different murders. At the time that he was put behind bars, he was confirmed at 20, and after comparing his jailhouse confessions to what police knew about different cases, that confirmed number moved to more around 36. He initially confessed to both Karen and Julie's murders, and then on January 24th, 1989, literally the day he was going to the electric chair, he confessed to Denise's murder. Investigators were already very confident that he was Karen's murderer. As you can remember, that was the case he was extradited to Colorado for. The physical evidence in her case really solidified Bundy as her killer, even without his confession. The hotel that Karen was staying at would have been crowded, so investigators knew that she most likely went with Bundy willingly. And he confirmed this. He had asked Karen to help him carry his ski boots to his car as he was on crutches, which we know was a key ploy for Bundy. 
He actually even mentioned that there was another woman that he targeted first, but that woman ignored him. And then Karen was the next woman that he came across that kind of met his demographic. So he got her to the parking garage, and then he actually hit her with one of the snow boots and pushed her into the trunk. Karen was Bundy's first Colorado victim and his 14th verified victim. According to Bundy, Julie's case played out much the same way. He approached her on crutches and asked for help. And when they got near his car, he knocked her unconscious and put her in his trunk and handcuffed her. He then drove on I-70 West towards the desert. Once he got to another location, he raped Julie. And he actually said she started to become conscious at one point and tried to run, but he caught her. He then strangled her and left her at this new location in the desert. Her body is supposedly in a shallow grave near Rifle, Colorado, which is just over an hour west of Vail. Bundy said that the area had a circular drive and large trees. When explaining his involvement in Julie's murder, according to Randy Wyrick's reporting for the Aspen Times, Bundy told Vail police detective Matt Linval, quote, I don't know why, I just sometimes do that, unquote. Julie Cunningham was Bundy's oldest confirmed victim at age 26. While Bundy confessed to Denise's murder the day that he went to execution, her case was not officially closed till just a few years ago. Grand Junction Police Department listened to Bundy's confession tapes and also reached out to investigators that talked to him often while he was on death row. According to Bundy, he killed Denise and threw her body in the Colorado River west of Grand Junction. Grand Junction police started looking into the case again in the beginning of 2019, and after re-reviewing all of the Bundy info, Denise's case was reclassified from a missing person to a homicide in May 2019. The case was then closed as it is believed that Bundy was her killer, and he obviously had already been executed at that point. A gas station receipt showed that Bundy was in Grand Junction the day that Denise went missing. And this would make Denise Bundy's last known Colorado victim. When her case was closed in 2019, it came 45 years after she had vanished. And to date, Denise's body has never been found. In 2013, Grand Junction Police Department took DNA from Denise's mom in the case that her body was ever found. And this ended up being a good thing because Denise's mom actually passed away in 2017, just four years later. And had they not done that, they wouldn't have that DNA on file just in case Denise's body is found. Both Julie and Denise's cases are still active as missing persons cases until the remains are found. So Denise's case is closed as far as Bundy having done it. And Julie's case is also assumed to have been Bundy but they are keeping those active and open until their bodies are recovered. If you have any information on Julie's case, please call the Vail Police Department at 970-479-2200. And if you have any information on Denise's case, you can call the Grand Junction Police Department at 970-244-3649. While there are a number of murders that are verified to have been at the hands of Ted Bundy, it's most likely just the tip of the iceberg. Some investigators think that he could have killed up to 100 people. 
Leading up to his execution, Bundy's appeals were rejected, and he was executed on January 24, 1989. He was 42 at the time of his execution, and the execution came 11 years after his escape from authorities in Colorado. According to Terry Tarones' reporting for the Gazette, when speaking of Bundy's execution, Lieutenant Joe Kinda said in true Kinda fashion, quote, so long, Ted, unquote. Okay, guys, so did I just blow your mind? Did you know all of these things that happened when Ted Bundy was in Colorado? Because honestly, I don't think I knew the breadth of it going into researching this story. And there's much more because this is actually going to be a two-part episode. There are some victims in Colorado that are attached to Bundy but are unconfirmed. So next week I'm going to cover some of those that are not verified but have good links to Bundy. But let's go ahead and wrap up with some thoughts about today's episode. Musing number one. As I said in the beginning of the episode, Ted Bundy's story is often told with Bundy as the star of the story. One thing in particular that stands out to me is actually the judge that sentenced him, or it might have been at his conviction, I forget exactly which, in Florida, actually told him that, you know, it was a shame that he'd done these things because he was talented at being a lawyer and he wished he had taken a different path and he could have worked with him someday. And while I understand the sentiment of like someone who's gone awry when they could have been a better person, you said that in front of family members of victims. And I think that's so encapsulating of what happens with the Ted Bundy story is regardless of the things he did, he becomes the star. And the women who are his victims just become these like black and white headshots that are, you know, pasted all together. And they're just like this rabble of victims. And it's it shows in the information that's out there, because even in some of the articles I researched, the women's ages weren't even correct. And you all know that I like to give as much information on who victims really were in life and what they liked and what they did and what their passions were. And it's impossible to find this information. And maybe there's more out there about some of his other victims. But as far as his Colorado victims, there's very little out there about who these women were. And that says everything about what is wrong with the telling of the Ted Bundy story. Musing number two. While all of Ted Bundy's murders are gruesome and horrific and terrifying, there's something that really strikes me about Karen's case because the incredibly small window of time between her being seen getting on the elevator in the lobby, being seen getting off the elevator just one floor up, and being so close to her room and never making it there. And it's something to always think about. I've said this in other episodes that... We all get lax, we get close to home, we get close to our car, we get close to our friend's house. You've done it a million times and you know, you go into kind of your automatic mode and those are the times when you need to be the most alert. Musing number three, and I know this is the one blazing in everybody's brain right now, of how much fewer victims Ted Bundy would have if he had not escaped in Colorado. And let me tell you, there's a big sentiment when you're looking through sources about this that, you know, Colorado investigators at the time talk about going to other states and like just having this looming feeling of like everybody looking at them, 
and thinking you're the ones who let him get away. And while there's good reason for this, I'm not defending two of prison's escapes from the same state, let alone the same region. <laughs> it's not excusable by any means, but... You know, I think we have to understand, too, that we all know Ted Bundy was a smart man. He was conniving. He was, you know, he thought things out. So what's to say that this couldn't have happened in any other state? So, you know, and the, the crazy thing is about that is, and I'll talk a little bit about this next week, too, but so much of what happens when Ted Bundy is in Colorado is kind of glossed over. Like, I knew that he had escaped from Pitkin, I did not realize there was a second escape in Colorado until I really dug into this. And it's amazing that he did so many terrible things that two prison escapes within six months of each other are just kind of like, they fly under the radar when you're telling the Ted Bundy story. So, you know, there's a big question of, you know, the Chi Omega women would have not have died. Kimberly Leach would have not died. And who knows what other victims there are out there. I mean, he traveled to a lot of places in that short amount of time. He was in Denver, he was in Chicago, he was in Arbor, he was in Atlanta. You know, there was a lot of time there and we know he was kind of unraveling at that point. So it is, you know, devastating that those could have been stopped. But I don't know, I kind of think in this alternate universe that, you know, it could have happened anywhere and Unfortunately, I think there would have still been that many deaths at the hands of Ted Bundy. Musing number four, and this is one I've echoed so many times recently, but I did mention that in his Salt Lake apartment, there was a crowbar found that had blood on it. Now, I haven't really been able to find if that was ever connected to another victim. So I am saying this thought on the you know, operating on that it hasn't been. And you know, I always hope that forensic science continues to develop and that someday we will get that answer. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning into the one year anniversary episode. It's so, so exciting to be here. You know, I said when I started Altitude Crime, I was going to at least do a year and see how it went. And, you know, in reality, that seems so far off and it it just feels so wonderful for her to be here. It's wonderful for you to be here listening. And I'm so, so, so grateful for you. So as I said, next week, we are going to be continuing an examination of Ted Bundy in Colorado. We do have some more information of some possible victims of his in the state. And in the meantime, please, please, please reach out to me. You can get me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And if you haven't already, please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. Or if you're listening on YouTube, hit that like, subscribe, hit the bell icon, get all the updates. As I said earlier in the episode, we are live on Patreon. You will see some more information going up on there between now and the 15th. But it is live and ready to go. So you can either go to patreon.com slash altitudecrime. Or you can go to altitudecrime.com and there is a link right up at the top bar for Patreon. It is $5 a month. And as I said, in addition to one full episode, you will also get 10% off merch and ad-free listening. So I sincerely appreciate any support you give. If you're not able to, I totally understand things are tough 
finances are hard for everybody. So if you are just a listener that tunes in here every week, know that I am just as thankful for you. You are what has made Altitude Crime what it is now. If you have the ability to give a little and get a little extra content, that just helps us keep thriving. And as always, you can find this week's sources on AltitudeCrime.com. I have some additional things on there like the link to Hunted, which is a three-part podcast that was done by the Coloradoan regarding Ted Bundy's time in Colorado. And if you want to overall dive into more Ted Bundy knowledge that I did not cover in this episode as we're focusing on Colorado, there's plenty there to check out. Well, guys, thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week about more Ted Bundy on Altitude Crime. The One Year Episode, Episode 52. Ted Bundy in Colorado, Part 1, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.